You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Alex Inace, and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent, and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organization. I'm joined by three esteemed leaders within the NHS, three digital esteemed leaders. Um, and I think best way is to, if we start with introductions, uh, Peter, you're the first one uh, on, on my screen here. If, if, if you want to start, that'll be great. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm, I'm Pete Thomas. I'm a, uh, uh, by background, I'm a consultant pediatric eye surgeon, um, but I spend most of my time doing sort of clinical informatics and digital stuff now. So I'm, I'm Chief Clinical Information Officer at Moorfields Eye Hospital. Um, we, we, we do ophthalmology, so we do all eyes all the time. Uh, we're the biggest provider of ophthalmology in the, in the Western world. Um, I'm also Director of Digital Medicine there, and that gives me a bit of a focus on uh, digitally enabled care pathways. In addition to all of that, I, I spend a couple of days a week working with NHS England and NHS Digital uh, as one of the clinical leads for the digital transformation of eye care. Um, in terms of what I'm passionate about, I suppose, I suppose work-wise, it's, you know, being a CCIO, it's a huge mix of different kinds of work you get involved in, right from sort of, you know, research and innovation right through to uh, sort of, you know, governance and, and digital clinical safety. I suppose stuff that really, really interests me and really excites me is probably more on the innovation side of things, sort of, you know, finding neat solutions, particularly neat automatic solutions to, to, to sort of clinical workflow processes that, that that have previously taken up an awful lot of time. So yeah, that's that's me. Amazing. Leroy, do you want to go next? Hi, uh, good to meet you all. My name is Leroy Adamson-Parks. I'm the Director of IT and Digital Services at Croydon Health Services NHS Trust. Uh, I've been in post coming up to five years now, but I've been in the NHS for about 20 years. Amazing. Perfect. Stuart? Hi, I'm nowhere near as interesting as Peter. Um, so I am the Acting Chief Information Officer at South London, the Morsley, which is a mental health trust. Um, it's the one of the oldest uh, mental health trusts in the world. It's been going since, I think it's 1247. Um, it's, a, 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 it's a very long while that, we, that mental health services have been about. So um, yeah, we've got a number of different uh, organisations and the word Bedlam is part of our Bedlam Hospital, as you, you'd all, all know. So um, I've been in the NHS for six years, um, coming through uh, more of a technical angle than what Peter is from a, a clinical angle. So um, I currently am leading the digital offering at South London Morsley. So um, yeah, very interested in innovation, got some great team and COVID has been very beneficial. Um, for us and helping get get some people that we probably wouldn't have got recruited to. However, the times are changing and we'll talk about that in this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> Amazing. Perfect. Uh, Peter, I think it's best if we start with your question first. Do you want to address the question? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I guess the context of mine is that, you know, people have been going on about clinicians getting involved in in healthcare IT for a long time. We had we had the WACTA report back in 2016 that, that spoke a lot about CCIOs and, and seeing it as a board level position. But I think HTN recently did a, did an article and there was only two CCIOs on NHS boards uh, in the entire country. So I guess question to you guys. Um, where, where do you think CCIOs should sit in an organisation? You know, who should they report to? How should they get involved? And, and, and what kind of resourcing should they have? What sort of interactions should they have with sort of more traditional IT and CIOs? Leroy? 
So I'll, I'll kickstart. Thank you. A very good question <laughs> and one that's uh, true to my heart. So I'm also going through a restructure in my department at the moment. Uh, probably the fourth in my five years at the Trust, we've gone through some cycles of financial savings to hit, which has obviously led to going back to just the core deliverables of the old fashioned reactive IT teams that sit in the back office and fix boxes and wires uh, to almost doubling in size subject to this consultation over the last two and a half years. Why have we grown so much and why have we needed to, I think gets to the heart of your question. Uh, so the restructure will bring in four teams, one of which we're calling the office of the CXIO, deliberately calling it CXIO, so it's not clinical or nursing specific, it could be anyone and everyone that's got that level of interest. That team will be a group of eight or nine staff, including uh, led by a CCIO. Uh, she'll have two deputies, a CNIO and uh, an EPMA principal pharmacist, recognising nursing and midwifery and pharmacy have got significant uh, digital requirements and are actually quite progressive in some areas compared to other parts of the trust, or oh, certainly where I work. We've also created four posts of the part-time that align to each of our four clinical directorates. So they also report to the CCIO, but their specific role is to work with each of their four clinical directorates or their respective clinical directorates to help them better understand what the art of the possible is. Because I think one, one of the biggest challenges when you talk to a lot of clinicians or people outside of IT is they don't really feel comfortable because they don't feel they're technical. And so they don't know what's going wrong it's taken a long time to move away from can you help me sort my password from my iPad to actually we've got a problem with this clinical service or this pathway uh, and we just need are there any opportunities that we could do this differently improve patient outcomes increase quality or productivity so I think the office of the CXIO will go a long way to start that journey because it'll be the first time we've had quite such a group together and I'll add one extra thing, which is we're just finalising the recruitment of a Darcy Fellow. So uh, a one year fixed term contract, uh, working uh, full time on a specific project, reporting into the CCIO. Uh, and we've got some really interesting candidates who have been shortlisting and we're looking forward to interviewing in the next week or two. So, again, someone whose full time job will be that almost the research angle of let's choose a particular area and deep dive into it because the other posts being generalist or part-time won't have that same level of time uh, and capacity to be able to support that growth of clinical digital interface. So yeah, really interesting time for the trust. Amazing, Stuart, what are your thoughts? I think that's really interesting, especially the way that you're, you're attacking it, Leroy. So my views, uh, and there definitely needs to be, we're all in that transition and this is that transformational piece that we're in at the moment. We've gone from foundation IT, which is sure, you know, getting the infrastructure right and, you know, the, the, the wires and the boxes now to starting to look at processes and, and making sure and, you know, making sure it works for the clinic, clinicians and the people that we're, we're in business to support. Um, I think we've also got to not forget about the service user. That's an, I think that might be the next step where actually we start getting, you know, uh, embedded service users within our departments that we can call upon and, and use when we get problems. 
Um, but I think the CCIO or the Office of the CXO, I really like that term. We, we are looking at something similar um, within South London Morsley. Where it sits within the organisation is an interesting one because, you know, digital at the moment is very departmentalised, isn't it, in organisations, whereas actually it's it's generic, it's broad, it's 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 everywhere. And and I think um, giving that 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 reign to the CCIO in its broadest term and that office will actually help drive that. I've seen um, it, it, be, uh, some colleagues that we know over in Surrey and Borders, Toby and Mike and Doug have really pushed that and they've, you know, they've grown massively in that space where I, th I believe uh, Doug, the CCIO, is in, uh, is in charge of uh, customer experience over there. So that's, you know, a great viewpoint that they that they've put on it. And actually, I, I really like that viewpoint because actually it should all be about that. Because if you look at building an application and innovation in that space, you always put the person that you're trying to, you know, use it at the centre of that, that conversation. So if clinicians are in at the forefront of our mind, and they should be, then actually it would really help with us driving that adoption through of all of the transformation bits that are coming on. Because it's this is just, this is like a train now, isn't it? With, remember when you was in school in physics, you used to get those cars with that bit of tape on the back that used to punch numbers. We're in that that sort of process now where the digital bus is, is on that on that road and we're we're now having to, you know, products are not going to get less, are they, digital products? So we need to scale into the workforce. But I do think, and it comes on to a bit of the topic that I was going to discuss later, that there is an opportunity there for us to give something to the clinicians as a profession to actually add a different dimension to their role. And it might mean that we could help with the recruitment challenges that we have. Peter, does that answer your question? Anything you want yeah, to add yeah, to that? Yeah, yeah, really interested, really interested to hear that and uh, really interested in uh model that uh, you're developing there, Lee Ryan. The, the CXIO thing is really interesting. It's a really useful term because um, the C and CCIO stands for clinical. Well, uh, the first one is chief and the second one is clinical. Um, but I do find a lot of feedback from colleagues who aren't doctors. They assume that, this, that somehow it, it means doctor, even though actually really, and Doug, for example, um, I, th I think comes from a nursing background. Is that right? Um, I, I could be completely wrong there. Um, but um, I think there's um, I think there's various CCIOs in the country already um, that don't come from a medical background. But I do find uh, from a lot of allied health professionals and nurses, they sort of challenge me a little bit about the CCIO sort of, um, you know, being sort of the lead of the CXIO team. And I think what we need to do is, is sort of get people to understand that, you know, from all professions, the CCIO is that final common point uh, of the clinical informatics profession. And whether you're a pharmacist, whether you're a, uh, whether you're a, um, uh, a doctor or nurse, that that, that that is open to you. And it probably comes in, I'll probably stop talking now, actually. I think that comes into some of the stuff I think we're going to talk about later, about this idea of having a career path and a profession and a framework in which people can sort of get involved and have an impact. Yeah, definitely. Anyone want, want so, to add anything? Yeah, yeah go on, you, you go first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I was going to say, so we're, but there was a point in there that we haven't really broached upon is where in the organisation the CCIO sit because, you know, there's a there's a lot out there, a lot of discussion about, you know, CDIO, C, you know, should be on the board, there should be a digital representation on the board. We know that's not commonplace around all trusts and how that happens. So where do we see... The CCIO in in that world as well. I suppose it depends on the organisation whether the the digital lead is is also a clinical lead, which is in your 
uh, your organisation, Peter. But it, it's where where do we, you know, do we think that that would be the right place to put them on board? Where actually, you know, will they be focusing on the things that we need them to focus if they're dealing with more of the public agendas that boards have to to go and do? So it's a that's an interesting discussion point as well. I think. Yeah. Peter Leroy. So my angle was going to be because you mentioned the WACTA review. I've never known how to say that one properly. Uh, so I also like the Topol review because that talks about upskilling the whole clinical workforce digitally. It's something I'm trying to push forward with my trust with the interim medical director and the CCIO and the learning and development team and my IT training team. So there's something to me about that review coming out three years and three months ago. So I think it was February 19. I read it from back to front because I thought IT is not the IT department's or the only job of uh, doing IT is not for the IT department. It's for everyone. We use IT ubiquitously in our normal everyday life. Uh, going back to the comments about usability and user experience, we are all very vocal if our app doesn't work quickly or when we click a link, it doesn't take us through to the right page we want or on our mobile device, it's not rendered in the right way and you get frustrated. And yet we go to work and of course, we're not financial companies with shareholders and significant amounts of investment. So we're not going to be able to do all that R&D. But we do need to focus on user interface, user experience, because if the purpose of a system is to automate, if the purpose of a system is to allow us to use, gather and use rich data, to monitor trends and improvements and benefits, then we've got to target maximum utilization as a KPI rather than uh, does it cost less? And that's the value discussion, which I know is really interesting because a lot of the NHS is in the financial savings year at the moment because cost improvements are significant. Uh, so one angle this year particularly is the finance, whereas the quality, the productivity, the usability are not as important in this cycle or this year it will come back again i have no doubt um, maybe when ics's are formed and they get to grips with what the new financial regime is so there's something about recognizing when to engage people that can help sell that message and evangelize it uh, and that's why the office of the cxio is one thing but working with other people in the organization to have them as i think we used to call them champions didn't we user local champions or local users or whatever it might be champion users super users that worked at a point in time it feels like that language isn't used so much anymore and we don't do as much of that so i wonder if that's because it was seen as a bus race for a few years and someone left and over time those posts became unfilled or whether there's a different way of doing it and truly embedding it. Yeah, I mean, the the, the, the Topol review is a really interesting one. Cause a couple of things that came out of it with, with the Digital Academy and the, and the Topol fellowships. And we've had, a fair, we've had, I think we've had five through so far Topol fellows and they've all been absolutely brilliant. And, you know, the Digital Academy, I, I was on it uh, great as well. Um, it, it's, it's all a little bit disjointed, though. So we'll have a Topol fellow through and then the question is, what do they do next? Um, and again, it comes back to the career pathway that um, 
that there's as yet there's not much framework for that professional development so there's these sort of isolated offerings you um you know you can do various nhs entrepreneurs course and there's a topol fellowship and then you sort of back to your back to your training post back to your back to your back to your day job full time after the end of that fellowship and quite a big gap before you're sort of a digital academy level and so that whole workforce thing is, is, is really interesting and it's i think there's a need for a something more longitudinal sort of offerings at every stage and a way of keeping people engaged because otherwise you do find that clinicians will tend to take their skills and drift off because <laughs> that, that gets me thinking about the um the leadership academy so i did the nye bevan program crikey probably eight nine years ago now when i was more of a generalist than an it specialist but then you've got the elizabeth garrett anderson a mary seacole program and i think there's one at the more entry level so there are steps and it's quite logical in your career path the digital academy to me being on it and having had to pause it because on top of an incredibly busy day job and with a, a family uh, it feels like it's a battle of who can last the longest and stay standing rather than giving you the, the time you need to think and reflect so maybe there are intermediate steps that would come in the next few years to add to the digital academy so that we can build on it over time Stuart, anything you want to add um i think it's interesting to hear the reflections you know one of the things that is absolutely sure and guaranteed is that clinicians are entrepreneurial by default i've come to this you know, and, and, and if they can't get it through the internal services, they'll work, they'll go away and they'll sort it out themselves. And that's something that we need to be uh, mindful of. And, I, you know, we've all seen it because, you know, consumerization of IT has come along and made everything really easy in the home. But I think there is a bit of education that people need to understand about. Actually, there is a discipline to digital and and the things that go on like cybersecurity and the reason we do these things and the reason there's a change board and the reason that the service management and and it's all about education and understanding because when you've got someone that needs something and they can go away and do it and spin it up quickly on the internet and there you go actually you know half of the the digital service that i have is is shrieking at that point because yes you can do it but actually we've got all sorts of other risks that we're trying to mitigate against and but harnessing that passion in the right way through and getting that appreciation because what my feedback on the digital academy was great it was great but actually as someone that's lived in the digital world worked through it and done that actually a, a lot of it the, the most beneficial module for me was about population health because i've never heard about that never knew actually about you know the whole reason why we do vaccinations and and for someone coming on the other side of the coin i found that really 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 useful and, and helped put a lot of bugs but a lot of people that are on it are obviously coming at it because they've all done that through their, their training and their learning beforehand and actually they're starting to learn some of the finer um pillars of what it is of, to be digital and and drawing those all together i think the total review was was very good but you know like anything in the nhs there will be another review next so it will come out in the next couple of years and because we're changing at the moment in the center aren't we and uh, so you know i think that iteration will come but the principles will remain the same so because that's interesting because every junior doctor comes out of medical school and they can tell you what a randomized con controlled trial is and what a double blind random so you know the the, the sort of research people have, have got 
their their staff into basic medical training but informatics i mean most 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 junior doctors coming out of medical school can't tell you what snowmed is you know don't often may not know what emr stands for um you know that there, there really is a massive lack of informatics in, in in medical school and i'm sure the same applies to pharmacy school and optometry school and nursing school but so this it's really interesting point of mine i thoroughly agree with uh, if that's the right phrase can you thoroughly agree with something uh, I, I was chatting to my CFO, who's my exec last week, and I was saying at executive level, it's still, it's not okay to say you don't understand numbers and budgets. It's not okay to say that you don't really understand performance management and information and trends and graphs and things like that. And it's also not okay to say uh, you don't really understand workforce challenges and you can't come up with flexible solutions. And yet it's still OK in 2022 to say, oh, can, can you help me in the middle of a board meeting because they're struggling to use their iPad? I'm, I'm not very techy. And to me, that's jokey. I say it jokingly on this podcast, but actually there's a very serious point behind that, whereas it is OK to say that. And we were on a national meeting on Tuesday morning. I think you're on there, Stuart, where Sonia Patel uh, was talking about pay struggling to recruit staff and that's why that was my topic for today and someone published a spreadsheet which was the national pay profiles for different organizations and different executives and it didn't even have a director of IT or a CIO on that list it had finance HR chief exec chief operating officer director of estates and facilities it didn't even have IT now in 2022 isn't that astonishing yeah, that's ridiculous. But I suppose that emphasises the, the 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 challenge that we have with digital being taken seriously. I think boards and leadership are starting to get it because it's it's starting to come in, but it's still not happening at a pace where it can really be, you know, supported in a way because people will just move on, won't they? They move out of the the organisations, and that's some of the things we're seeing. Amazing. I think now it's a it's a good moment to go to your question, Stuart. Yeah, so my, my question is, uh, how do you feel as leaders we can support the professionalisation of the digital industry? So, you know, we've been doing a bit of work and, and nowhere near as mature at Slam, but, you know, there has to be some way to be seen as a profession and be credible in the things that we do. Digital Academy helps out some of that. Um, but I'd really like you know hear your thoughts on what what you what you think from your side of things. We at Slam we've we've joined the BCS and give everyone in our organisation access to the British Computer Society to to start that because if I can show to the executive that we've got you know people going through that system and people are are doing that continual learning and I think it will really help people understand you know a me understand what my gaps are in my my workforce but also make sure people realise that you don't have to go on a five day Microsoft course to learn anything, right? Or you don't have to do a five day technical course somewhere with Cisco just to learn something. Um, I think we need to, you know, have these these ways to, to capture that continual development so then the staff can play it back and we can show and hopefully we can help the BCS become a professional body in its own right, the same way as if you're a surveyor, you'd go and get your, you know, and that may well help with some of this um, 
credibility gap that I think we have in with digital around the around different organisations. But I take your your viewpoints on it. Who wants to go? Happy to happy to hop in. So um, I think we've I think it comes to something that we've we've touched on already, which is. Uh, I think the distance between um, the IT side and the clinical side, we, we've got lots and lots of IT people in the country and we've got lots and lots of clinicians in the country, but we've got very few people who, who straddle those two worlds. Um, so very few uh, IT professionals who have a really good understanding of, um, I guess, the actual business of healthcare in terms of, you know, what it's like on the ward, what it's like in clinic, what the needs are. Um, and similarly, we have very few clinicians who understand the first thing um, about uh, about IT and about what what makes a good solution um, for the whole trust. So uh, I think Steve, you already sort of hinted at it. We got lots and lots of very innovative clinicians who will identify a very carefully tailored niche solution uh, for their particular need uh, and be very keen to implement it. And that rapidly becomes unsustainable because you end up with a hundred different apps that all do something very, very specific. They don't talk to each other. Um, so I think, I think to, to, to make it, to sort of drive the professionalization, we need to encourage those people who, who who sit between the two and have good understanding of both. I mean, I can't speak too much about people from an IT background. I don't know that world quite so well, which maybe illustrates the problem from a, from a clinical side. Um, it means that we do need to do things like we mentioned already. So we need to start that process in medical school. It's it's, it's crazy that most medical schools don't touch this in, in 2022. Like I say, when, when someone on board is happy to say that they're not a techie, mad that medical most medical schools don't have a significant portion of their syllabus um, that's going to help you know future clinicians to set up remote care systems and make most use of a use of an EMR for example so I think we need to embed it uh, in all of our professional training regardless of what type of clinician you are um, we need to expand the offerings that that are going to be available uh, for clinicians after uh, they finish medical school then so what's the career pathway for someone who eventually wants to become a ccio you know historically you do it by going through your standard training and then getting involved in a few projects and then the trust suddenly thinks right we need a ccio who's it going to be and it's whoever's supported a few a few different projects so um you know from the clinician side things like the faculty of clinical informatics um setting up you know the um you know the ability now um for, for the gmc to recognize um appraisals done as a clinical informatician which is probably the route i'll be going uh, for subsequent uh, appraisals um expanding offerings like the topol fellowship and creating sort of continual offerings so you know the digital academy not just being this very difficult to do thing uh, you, you balance against all of your all of your other uh, commitments when you're already senior but have those offerings alongside during training um and and making time in in people's jobs for it as well i mean from a clinician perspective it is very hard to get time out of clinic or, or out of the ward or out of theatres in order to focus on this and do those activities that are needed for professionalization to go on courses to gain cpd to uh, to, to attend qualifications um yeah so it's uh, a fairly rambling answer but i think that there's a whole suite of things we need to do Oh, don't worry about rambling. I'm, I'm the world's worst or the best, whichever way you look at it. Uh, so it, it's really interesting because I, I'm particularly interested in cyber security these days. And there was an article in The Times that put out last week around cybersecurity, emerging themes, dot, dot, dot. It referenced, though, uh, the central government consultations that are ongoing at the moment. And one of those consultations is around 
the professionalization in the same way we talked about with architects or banking or whatever it might be and you've got different levels uh, and they're suggesting there could be minimum training standards or minimum qualifications depending on the level of seniority in cyber security and i thought it's really interesting that they've pushed that for cyber security i wonder if that's because it's easier than for digital or it services as a whole or maybe they're deliberately choosing one where it is easier to set the model and show it can be done so that it then in future years can be rolled out to the other team. So really interesting for me. Uh, but it's, I think there are a couple of things to me. I, I use analogies uh, because I think, so I'm not technical in the same way you are, Stuart. I, I'm more a generalist. I've been an auditor. I've worked for the Office for National Statistics. I've been a an account director managing a whole range of services in the shared service uh, provided to NHS organisations. So I've had to train my organisation that I'm not a chief technology officer and I can't solve their Wi-Fi problems with their personal iPad. Uh, but it's my job as the director to make sure the right resources, the right capacity and capability are in place to meet the current and most importantly, the emerging needs of the organisation, because we all know probably a third of our time should be looking to the future and seeing the art of the possible because digital solutions do move so quickly. So the analogy piece has worked really well for me. Uh, I've had to learn to be slightly less sarcastic over time, uh, but we had a Southwest London discussion yesterday and we were talking about setting up a portfolio management office. Now, some people think that's just oh, that's a, another name for a programme office or another name for a project office. Actually, no, there are quite different disciplines with very different purposes and very different constructs. So why do I say that? Well, I think there's a, an immediate, not cynicism, uh, but a belief that we're just trying to create a structure out of something when it's not that difficult. So that's my first point. The second point, though, was this individual was talking about, it was almost like climbing Everest. That was the vision. So you set up base camp, you have your fundamentals in place, so you're building a house on stone. And then you bring in the first type of staff who are going to be there to take that momentum forward, embed those processes, and then they will move on once it's established to the more niche or expert programme and project leads to drive forward all of those programmes in the different areas, the different programmes you're seeing in the NHS. And I thought that was quite an, an interesting analogy. And I described it as uh, a car as well so getting into first gear is really hard it takes a lot of energy to start from scratch and to get a vehicle moving and that's when you find it's the wrong vehicle it's got the wrong fuel you've got the wrong people in the car and all those things so you've got to stop off and get new people in and then you can go faster and get to second gear so i think analogies are quite helpful um, because that translates digital stuff into language that most people understand because it is part of their everyday life um, I do honestly think, though, we've got some years to go. And the reason I say that is I'm talking to Rochelle, who works for NHS England, and she's the she head of user research. And it's really interesting because, going back to your point, Stuart, the user involvement, the user design is very new in the NHS, but it's been established from central government for about five, ten years through their gov.uk approach. Uh, but it's been in the commercial sector for longer. So we we do have to recognise we're a bit behind, but we can play catch up quicker, therefore, 
because we can learn from their mistakes or that what's worked really well. Uh, so I'm talking to her about how we can drive user research into what we do rather than, and this is not a criticism, this is just how it is, patient experience teams who will say, oh, we've got a patient engagement strategy. We sign that off the board. That's what we do for the next two years. We can't change it. Actually, that doesn't meet my need. If we're doing a patient portal, like we are in Southwest London, that's so fundamentally different, but it's built on mobile technology for those who are digitally literate, who can access anything and everything, discharge letters, x-rays, scans, referral letters, all of those things on their app at any time. They can put in information at any time. So I know I've gone slightly off track, but maturing and creating a career pathway is really hard when those career paths keep changing. Because in finance, you've got a pretty structured um, set of roles within a finance department. HR is changing a little, so maybe I wouldn't include that. But information and IT are changing quite dramatically. And that's why I go back to my four teams. My portfolio team is going to have business analysts, business change and engagement, service transition, because it's language that no one outside IT really gets but they add so much value to clinical services or operational services. Um, but those posts weren't around five years ago. So it's really difficult to mature when you're creating new roles or there are new ways of doing things in the market. Does that answer your question, Stuart? Yeah, I think it was good. Good uh, all round discussion. I like the way what you're saying, Leroy, about the portfolio sort of viewpoint I think it's a great one to to think about I do I do think that digital IT you know we move from IT to digital are we moving to transformation as the next iteration but that as you say it moves so quickly How, well the opportunity to move to around technologies is can be very quick um, you know the way the clouds come in and how we put that that embed that for the staff so they understand it is a real interesting one and then when we come to trying to gather those um, skill sets through recruitment is the next challenge because uh, as you know you know when DevOps first come about it's a bit like cyber you talk about cyber Leroy, and the, the big but you know we're, we're both on the edge of London to try and get cyber expertise in into our organizations you know more fields right you know you're playing with the big boys and canary wolf that pay significantly more in salaries and, and than what we could possibly like the frameworks we have in the NHS would never allow us to pay in fact um it would probably it'd be, it's a big problem so we have to think differently about that we do and, and just to add a specific anecdote this week is the second week since January where we've had a senior techie join and not come back on day two because they've got a better job offer elsewhere. We, we, you're right, we just can't compete. So how do we differentiate? And that's that's the challenge that we're facing nationally. Yeah, absolutely. I can I agree with that. I see it every day. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> but the market changes. Just as we're saying, digital solutions change. The market changes, not just in terms of the types of roles, but the skills that for a period of one, three, five years suddenly become incredibly important. 
if you went back five years ago, no one had on their CV experience of the Data Security and Protection Toolkit. They had the IG Toolkit. And if you put IG Toolkit experience on your CV and you went to an agency, you could get another couple of hundred quid a day. DSPT has just gone the same way. Yep. And it'd be DTAC because it's the next iteration, right? You know? Yeah. That's a whole podcast in itself where that sits in the organization. So I think our answer to you, Stuart, is it's it's really difficult. Um, and I think it's multiple strands. It's the clinical digital interface. It's the changing, understanding the need for change, uh, not just within IT, because we know where we need different skill sets based on the emerging needs and what we see in the market. But it's the wider organisational understanding of, well, I'll use another analogy, uh, because in my organisation, when I first joined, everyone thought an IT engineer was like a GP. They, they could solve everything. Yeah. Nope, I, I've got experts in six or seven different disciplines. So my service desk is in effect a GP. You come and talk to the, the practice manager and they'll point you in the right direction. And we'll come back to you in a queue and we'll have an expert who knows how to deal with your particular problem. And and that to me is a real life example of something very recently in the last two or three years that we've had to really change the language on and people now get it. But it's taken a lot of hard work. Yeah, definitely. I, I think maybe we still have a bit, bit of a problem as well about hospitals setting out a vision of where they're going. You know, when, when I when I see it from the sort of when I think about the clinical services that I expect us to deliver, I, I expect most of it to be delivered remotely and in our specialty. Uh, there's a huge amount we can deliver remotely and you know the, the role of the hospital ophthalmologist increasingly will become providing expert knowledge into a system on images that have been collected on the high street or information that comes from home but I, I don't see many hospitals really saying right how do we become a telemedicine organization you look at something like Babylon Health for example they've built their entire business structure around telemedicine and that probably looks quite different from how most hospitals go about business, which is still based on how do we provide face-to-face -face care, how do we provide clinic appointments, how do we provide theatres. So it's difficult then to provide that sort of long-term career path that supports professionalisation if if it's if it's simply supporting a traditional model of care. But as we sort of get used to the idea that hospitals or something needs to become a telemedicine organisation, then people can see how their position will grow and how their sort of you know long-term professional outlook improves as the hospital transforms. I'm not sure we've quite got to grips with that yet. But I think you highlight the points there, particularly around value, because we've worked out where the value can be added by the expertise rather than, and using my GP analogy again, or the surgery analysis, you become an expert through years of training in an established work program, whereas I can become a cybersecurity uh, lead without having gone through service desk, desktop team, server team, all the different, and then I've matured into that cyber role, I can come at it through a whole different route. And there are so many different routes. So that's quite difficult to understand as a concept, as something that's quite different to a linear career progression. I think it's best we go now go to your question, Leroy. Oh, can I remember it? Uh, so I think my question was, uh, I've been in back to backs all day, which I'm sure we all have. So my brain's a little fuzzy at this time of night. Uh, how do we recruit and retain the expertise we need for now and in the future in the NHS? 
Who wants to start? Well, Reg, you start on that one, isn't it? That's a, a challenge in itself. Um, I'll, I'll start it off then, sure. So, so we, we've, you know, the NHS, I suppose, from a brand perspective, is in a good position from where we've been over the past two years. Um, and I do think at a time when, um, you know, businesses were going, you know, getting rid of staff and furloughing, actually, that the NHS did have opportunities for people to come and join. And we've managed to get get some of those opportunities. How the, the now is the challenge of retaining those because the world's opening up. We're seeing it all the time. Um, I was encouraged to hear that they're thinking centrally about looking at the, the framework for pay for digital staff because there is such a disparity when you've got you know developers able to go from the NHS and then double their salary and get a 30% bonus working for bet 365 that's there's something not quite right there and we need to we need to compete at, at, with those sorts of employers now you know we have got the benefits that come with the NHS you know the holiday the pension but you know people especially young young professionals want more than that these days they want a great working environment they want you know um that ability to be flexible which i think we can do but that you know i do struggle with some of the office environments that we have around the nhs you know and, and whether you make that and you know and i think we've got an even bigger challenge about well how does that look in you know do we all work from you know work from home like we have been doing or the some of the people have been doing around the NHS, but I don't think that's a sustainable model, especially if you're trying to get young, excited talent or talent into the organisation, because you want to build teams, you don't want to build silos. And working in these virtual structured structures are creating, we've seen in some of our teams, they do create little silos and you, you sort of uh, Need to break those down and you know get people back in that room and and give that place and that that experience to work. Um, unfortunately, though, there, I, there was a bit of a cynic in me that says that money is still the drive, um, a big driver for people because that's what carves the way through life. And unfortunately for everyone here, you know, expense, everything's going up, isn't it? We've got a massive crisis with energy. You know, if you're a, a young person wanting to live around where I live or where I our services are in South London, then it's expensive. So you have, to, you know, sometimes in a London waiting doesn't quite represent that when you've got a flat and all they do is can afford their flat and that's it. So I think there are challenges, um, but I do think it's within our gift as a as a professional or as a as an employer to be able to break those down and actually become competitive and provide value to the to the organizations by getting the right people in the organizations. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I suppose I'll answer again from the sort of the, the, the getting clinicians involved in the digital side of things. Um, we, we don't have any problem with demand. We got loads and loads of clinicians who, who want to be involved in this and, you know, uh, many of them are very, you know, absolutely excellent. Um, and, you know, I've got brilliant CVs and can do all sorts of things. We, we've The problem with recruiting them, I suppose, is actually having the resources to recruit them into something. There are still very few 
jobs for clinicians within the NHS to get involved in digital transformation. It's still obviously a huge trouble in a time where there's there's massive backlogs and demand for, for clinicians to be in clinic and to be in theatres to actually free time in their working diary for them to get involved. So, so that's the, that's probably the main limitation on the recruitment side is that there simply aren't enough jobs or, or enough sessions um, to, to get enough clinicians involved. Retention is becoming more of a problem. There's been a huge exodus. Um, you know, people burnt out during COVID, a gradual sort of build up of dissatisfaction uh, with, with, with life as a clinician. And if you compare, you know, what, well, let's say a, a doctor in a clinic puts up with in, in England compared to uh, experience of being a doctor in a clinic in the States or in Scandinavia, where we just have this, you know, endless numbers of patients, you know, massive requirements on turnover. Um, what we've seen is quite a lot of doctors leaving, um, quite a lot going into other industries uh, and, and uh, you know, Industrially, industrially going into digital has been a big destination for that. Lots of people going to management consultancy, um, lots going into the pharmaceutical industry, uh, lots moving abroad. In fact, uh, recently one of our senior clinical informaticians, our, our clinical director of uh, telemedicine, uh, left to join a pharmaceutical company. Um, so that was sort of you know a, a major loss for us. That's somebody with a huge, huge background of research um, and uh, implementation of these systems, um, and, and right down to you know young doctors coming out of medical school lots of them are hopping over to Google, for example, um, because there are fantastic career opportunities there. We'll also see a, a, a lot, an awful number setting up startups and you can just you can just see them, you know, they're keeping, you know, you know, they're keeping themselves secure with their clinical jobs because maybe they got the training number, but their real interest has moved across into uh, into being an entrepreneur, into innovation. And so, so that is a real concern for us, I think, that we're We'll, we'll create a lot of sort of digital leaders among clinicians and find that a lot of those people then then transition across into uh, into industry, um, which, which is which is going to cause a huge challenge. Uh, I think we need to make it attractive for those people to stay in the NHS. So we need to give them the ability to pursue that as a career path. So if, if you look at sort of traditional research within the NHS, there, there's always been a pathway for clinicians to get into research, you know, to have sessions during a week for research, apply for grants, they can buy off some of their clinical time. We, we need to get that going for digital as well so that we can, you know, scratch people's itches within the NHS without forcing them to sort of, you know, find a startup which they can uh, jump onto. Um, so it comes back to that career path. Uh, creating space for it, but also making it interesting as well. So we don't want clinicians just to be involved in saying, right, uh, here's an EMR rollout, tell us 90 ways in which this doesn't meet your needs, but rather involving them more at the design stage, involving them more in the innovation stage, uh, involving, I, I think as, uh, as as both of you actually, Stuart and Leo have mentioned, you know, around not, not viewing IT as my, my, my iPad's broken, but rather here's a problem in my pathway, uh, what are the opportunities to solve it? So. Yeah, I, I think I, I see a huge problem with retaining clinicians who, who become digital leaders because I think they will just be inundated with good, good opportunities from industry. So we need to make it interesting for them and rewarding for them to stay. Anything you want to add, Leroy? Yeah, a few things, actually. It's really interesting to hear the different perspectives from you, Stuart and Peter. Um, both really interesting to me because when your work patterns are such that you are exhausted, you are burnt out, and you go from teams meeting to teams meeting with maybe 90 seconds for a coffee and a toilet stop in between, you don't get that time that most people need to download, reflect, just think through, and, or I need to give someone a quick call, which 
is crucial just to throw a few ideas around and maybe it goes to the heart again of what's expected of IT and going back to my comment when I first joined Croydon I remember my medical director grabbing me in the corridor saying Leroy I ordered an iPad for my new business manager do you know where it is and as I said earlier I can be slightly sarcastic and I said uh, I won't mention their name my service desk gets 6,000 calls a month do you honestly think I know where every single one of those is right now and I didn't say it quite so patronizingly but after two or three of those she said you're right that's and I said, well, imagine me going to the clinical director of surgery saying, who did um, so-and-so operate on in theatre three last Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock? You wouldn't know. So there's something really interesting about knowing what IT are there to do and how to get value out of them. I think the where you work from and the flexibility issue is, is not going to go away. I also think, moving on to the clinical piece, yeah, how how do we as an organization understand the value of those interface roles? Is it because we're just naturally used to going to an expert and a silo? And it reminds me of a book analogy. Uh, I can't remember who it was. It was a management theory book that was saying you go back 70, 80 years and you would have a general builder that would do everything. And you'd say, can you build a house? And they'd build you a house. They'd do the whole lot for you. These days, you have a project manager who oversees the build and they've got a plumber, a carpenter, a tiler, a roofer, a floor, floor laying person. I don't know what the trade is for that, uh, but that's that's how we've changed. And we don't say we need all five of those disciplines on the building site every day, Monday to Friday, nine till five, because it doesn't make sense with what you need in terms of the outcome you're looking to achieve. So I think that's why socially they've been talking about a portfolio career for years, haven't they? And if I work, I do the equivalent of two working days for them and a day for them and an evening for them. Why, why aren't we flexible enough in our contracts and ways of working to A, enable that, B, allow it, and C, understand and trust it? So, yeah, really interesting thoughts from both of you. Anything on that? Yeah, there was, there was there's one quote. So a colleague of mine who I've, I've known for several years, uh, we, we trained at very similar times, recently recently left as well, having, you know, in a position to apply for good consultant posts and decided not to. And um, the that, that reason for moving into industry was that in the NHS, they got, um, their exact words were, they got responsibility without resources. So there's constant shoveling on of things to do and the resources to do them well never quite keeping pace uh, with the responsibility to perform them safely um, and I think you know that, that that that's the case generally I think that why, why why a lot of clinicians will find are sort of you know dropping away um, and that there is a bit of an exodus but I think it affects the digital side of things as well that we have a mindset of too many people doing it as a favor or as a sideline or, a, or as a hobby and not having embedded it in is something that we value them doing it with dedicated time or a dedicated career path. I do think that's an opportunity, though, if we're going through if what we said earlier on is that if we are as a digital department becoming more thinking about it being more transformative, we can start offering up those one PAs or two PAs for people and that time to actually help with that burnout and that fatigue that you're talking about, Peter. And I think it could make it more attractive for, and hopefully stop 
you know, it will all come down to different things, but it's something that I, I'm hoping we'll be able to offer to the clinicians within my organisation as a really, really strong positive point for them to stay within the organisation because we have real, real, you know, recruitment issues across the board in our clinical functions in mental health. So if we can start adding a different perspective at it, that means you're not, as you say, getting all that burden all the time and all that responsibility all the time and you can focus slightly differently it comes on to that point what we're all in with teams aren't we at the moment we're in the whack-a-mole of teams you know bang next bang next bang and actually you know it's not good for everyone's health or, uh, as well because the people that in my house the people that get it is when you go and in uh, you know from here i'll go and have straight into dinner whereas if i'm in the office up in london you know i've got a train journey to decompress and to reflect whereas actually there is no no decompression or reflection when you're in because you then go back into family life or whatever you have in your home and you're off to do it so it, it we do need to think ourselves and change our habits to what we've been driven into so just as you're talking there Stuart, you're just making me think of i was at a leaving drinks recently and someone was talking about changing uh, an HR director's role to being a director of people and culture and part of me wonders how whether that's a a useful uh, whether that will deliver the culture shift that we're expecting or hoping it will uh, I'm sure you get it in every IT team across the NHS you've got some people that are established and it's their local organization they've been there for years it's 10 minutes down the road they always go for lunch with someone who works in outpatients or behind the switchboard or whatever it might be. And that's that's their social contract with the organisation, in effect. And then there are others who, you look at commercial sector again, who are driven by value. And so our managed print provider, they've got engineers who don't have an office uh, because their office is their home. They're scattered all across London and their KPI is to fit result respond and fix a certain issue within one hour four hours eight hours whatever it is so they they allocate their resources flexibly to meet that need of the business interestingly a lot of hr directors are still into presenteeism i think because there's a going back to that social contract the clinicians want to feel they've got their support close to them and can help them quickly so changing that mindset to actually during COVID, my service desk went home and that we we rapidly implemented the ability for them to dial in and support wherever they wanted to. It helped those people that had that were at risk that. Oh, have we lost him? Oh, looks like the uh, children on the experts. Oh, no, no, they're back. <laughs> Director of Estates and Facilities calling me. I wonder what's going on. But it's so until we that culture change happens and I, we need to keep pushing at that boundary, really pushing it. And maybe that's the difference between being a senior manager and being a senior leader, being uncomfortable in, but still having those conversations anyway. Uh, until we really push that and we the door opens a little and we see a chink which we did in covid until that becomes embedded and trusted i think we're going to struggle to retain people that want that flexibility 
I am sure, Stuart, you're having the same problem we are. We're trying to bring it into RIMS, and Alex and I have been talking about it this week. When they find out it's on site four or five days a week, they don't turn up, they go somewhere else. Yeah, we're, we're quite lucky, so we are still remote within that, you know, in that world in SLAM. So, you know, we're, we're, we're having the opposite effect now of like, come on, guys, let's start meeting up in teams and get back in the room two days a week. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get the reverse, but absolutely right, because that's how a lot of the organisations around the UK now, you, you know, whereas before people had to go to site, now they don't, you just turn up, you can do what you want to, you know, do it what you what you want to do, where you want to do it almost. In fact, right at the beginning of COVID, if you was one of those lucky ones that had the vision, you could go and get your, uh, 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 go and get a visa over in Bermuda for, what was it, £3,000? And it's like a four hour difference. So you could work from the beach, you know, remotely, you're four hours behind, wouldn't you be over there? But um, actually, a lot of people done it and it really helped with their working life. I think that work-life balance is a big thing that we've all got to to reflect on and work, think how it can be best for our staff. And, and that's one of those nuggets that you could really polish to make sure you retain your staff, as you said, Leroy. Yeah. Just an ex example, like, my situation is I'm from Romania and my parents are still in Romania. So I, I sometimes have to go back to Romania and I have to I have the freedom if I want to work from Romania, I can work from Romania. So, for example, I went in, in April when my birthday was I went for a week then I worked there for a week and I'm there and now I'm going to do it regularly every three months. I can go back to Romania for, for, for the weekend or for the week and work from there. And that's just going to help the company evolution. It's going to help in making sure that retention stays stays high. Because it gives me the freedom to 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 align my 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 work life balance. I, I, absolutely, I've got a business manager exactly the same. She had a family emergency. She needs to go to work support her family in America. So she, you know, yeah, no problem. Go and work. That you know, as long as you do the bits that we need you to do, and you're you know, then no problem. Go and work over and support your family. And therefore, we've got someone that in fact I've had a number of people that you know. Covid's been a really tough time for some people, especially if you've got a distributed family. So we've got colleagues in my team who, um, you know, have come from India and their family, and people have had losses in their family and haven't been able to get back. So the cup, the world's opened up, and now they're able to get back. Surely we should be supporting them to be able to go over and see their families, and you know, not just have holiday time because you know a holiday might not be long enough if you haven't seen your family for two years. So, you know, we can support them in the work that we do to to, to get that balance and get that. And that's a, a valuable part of being a, a good employer. I agree. So to, to me, it's being brave, isn't it? And and maybe the NHS is slightly more risk averse. And so the, the way I look at lots of scenarios or I think them through in my mind, is this the kind of thing that we get on the front page of the local press? Because just what you're describing, Alex, if if it became publicly known in Croydon, and I'm not picking on Croydon, I'm just using it as an example because that's where I work, that half the IT department uh, haven't been into the office for two years. In fact, three of them have worked from Poland, wherever it might be. That kind of thing would that would still today, for a significant part of the population, and maybe this is just my 
um, self-doubt, they that would be newsworthy rather than actually they've been able to support so many people and have a better and I call it a life balance. I don't call it work life because work's just part of life. So a better life balance, because how many of us here, you wake up, you put your coffee machine on and the first thing you do is you look at your emails and you look at your meetings. So you do work differently. I just don't think HR and culture have caught up with that and know maybe there's a they don't quite know how to create a, a contractual arrangement, a way of working that is flexible and meets that need. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I think there was um, there's an interesting bit of legislation. I don't know, was it just before COVID where they actually put through that reading your phone on the train is actually classed now as working hours? Yeah. Because that was the prime example. You know, how many people, you know, get on their train and you work, you work on the train. So, you know, you work, we work all the time and, we, you know, you, we call it, you know, I, I want to be able to offer my staff the opportunity to work when they want and how they want. As long as the output is there, that's when us as leaders have to put those big boy pants on and believe that, that the staff come to work to do a job and they do no one comes to do a bad job so you know and actually you, you don't have to micromanage staff you can get assurances in other ways and 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 offer that personable approach to to empower your staff to do a good job that's thank thank you Stuart for that mental picture I now have of you in big boy pants <laughs> we'll leave it on that note shall we <laughs> <laughs> Well, anything you want to add, Peter? No, I mean, it's uh, I, I, I agree with all of that. And one of the interesting things has been, I mean, our IT department were really great in supporting sort of remote access to to the full clinical suite. So, you know, we, we, we've got some clinicians who now um, split their time between uh, there's one who splits the time between Switzerland and, uh, and, uh, and London because they're able to do half their time on video consultations which they can do from a different country you know um they've got access to the full medical records they've got access to the video consult platforms that works really well for some people um and and, and that's been that's helped i'd say uptake of video consultations has been that it's it's uh it's come along with that offer of flexibility in, in where you deliver them from very